once again. Um, good morning, especially kids uh, who are here this morning. I think I saw Faith up the back there and uh, Daisy down there. I know Isabel's probably asleep and Hilkiah's up the back. Um, Bella, <laughs> yep, I'm getting the names. <laughs> um, yeah, great to see you guys. Uh, kids, we're going to hear from God's Word now. So would you join us in praying? Lord, we know that if you had been silent, then we would know nothing of you. We would not know the way to be saved. We would be under your just judgment. And yet, Lord, you have spoken through your word. And so we, we come humbly, gratefully, and we ask, Lord, that you would just help us to focus now. We ask that the Holy Spirit would work in our minds and our hearts so that you prompt exactly the kind of response to your word to each of us this morning that you so desire. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, open up your Bible with me, if you could, to Matthew chapter 20. If you're using the church Bibles, it's on page 825. Uh, we're just jumping straight in, verse 17, because this passage starts with a bang. And you know, you know that look people get when they're really, really focused on something. Like someone's just through the shopping center, like, and they're just... They're walking, it doesn't matter. Like they're going, Aldi, Saturday morning specials, I need to get there before everyone else. Or you're watching the Matildas, that penalty shootout from last week. It doesn't matter what else is happening in the world. They're just like transfixed. That's Jesus here this morning. Take a look. Chapter 20, verse 17. Jesus is going up to where? Jerusalem. He's got his eyes set on one thing. Jerusalem. And so he actually tells the crowd that's following him to stop in the middle of the road. He takes his disciples aside, perhaps by a tree. No one else can hear. And he gathers with them. Perhaps he sits down and he's like, boys, there's something I need you to hear. Verse 18. See, we are going up where? To Jerusalem. Now, what's the significance of Jerusalem? Of course, it's the holy city. Of course, it's a place where people would go, like Jews would go every year to make a sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. It's where the temple is. So, of course, you know, all of these things are sort of the site where God has done many things. But there's another layer of significance to Jerusalem. In fact, the disciples, as they hear these words, see, we're going up to Jerusalem, it would remind them of what Jesus had told them just maybe weeks, months earlier. Flip back to chapter 16 with me, verse 21. See, Jesus has just been declared as the Christ, the Son of the living God by Peter. And then verse 21 says, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to where? Jerusalem. And what's going to happen? He's going to suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. He's going to be killed and on the third day be raised. This is a prophecy, right? He's saying, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. And then on the third day be raised. And it's similar over in chapter 17, verse 22. We get a second prophecy. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be, so is about to happen. This is imminent. He's about to be delivered over into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And how did the disciples feel? They were greatly distressed. And you can understand why. Our friend, our Lord, He's telling us that he's going to go to Jerusalem and be killed. And so now we understand why he takes them aside here, back over in chapter 20, 
and he gives them this third and final prophecy to show that this isn't an accident. God hasn't lost control. You may feel distressed, but actually this is his plan because God's plan is for the son to suffer. And sorry, Rob, I don't think that's the active window there. Would you mind just clicking over to PowerPoint? There we go. God's plan is for the son to suffer. That's why he takes his disciples aside and makes sure that they know that this is how it's meant to be. And the, the prophecy that they get from Jesus here, I want you to notice something about it because it's not like a prophecy you might be familiar with in the movies. Have you seen The Matrix, for example, old movie, 1990, whatever it was? Uh, there's, a, there's a character in that movie whose name is Neo. He's the main protagonist. And uh, he is called The One. Okay, He's like the Messiah of humanity in this movie. And hopefully that's not spoiling anything for you. I mean, it's, it's from the 1990s. It's one of the most culturally relevant movies of all time. And even if you, you take his name, Neo, it's actually like an anagram for one Right, so it's all there, guys. <laughs> but, but in this movie, Neo goes and he meets this character here called the Oracle. And the Oracle is going to tell him whether he's the one or not. Right? It's, it's still hanging in the balance. Is he going to be this person that's going to save humanity? And it's all just really frustratingly vague. So he comes in and she asks him, so do you think you're the one? And he goes, I don't know. Aren't you supposed to tell me? Oh, well, well. Being the one is like being in love, okay? And she finishes the whole thing with, here, have a cookie. Right? It's just vague and frustrating. Is he the one or not? It's actually not clear. <laughs> but the prophecy that Jesus gives here is anything but vague. It, it's clear and detailed. He actually outlines step by step exactly what's going to happen when he goes to Jerusalem. Take a look. Verse 18, the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and then flogged like with a whip and then crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. You hear that sequence of events there, right? Delivered, like arrested, then condemned, then mocked, flogged, crucified, raised. Really clear Step by step, here is exactly what's going to happen in Jerusalem. And there's two things that I want us to pick up about that description. The first is, and this has to do with the fact that, that Matthew's gospel actually hasn't mentioned that Jesus is going to be crucified yet. In those previous prophecies, you might have noticed it said he was going to be killed, but not that he was going to be crucified. This is the first time that Jesus reveals, I'm going to be crucified on a cross and kids, you might notice up the back of our church, we've got a cross up here. You can see it, the, the beam that goes down, the beam that goes across. Yeah, that's right, Daisy, there's the cross. And kids, if you think about the cross, it might bring up, oh, that's church, right? Our church has a cross on the wall. And our, at the front, there's a big cross on the front of the building. It, cross just equals church. And adults as well, you might think, well, hey, a cross is something that it just signifies where God's people gather. And yeah, I know Jesus died on the cross and some people wear it around their neck. But back in the ancient world, 2,000 years ago, that's not what the cross meant. The cross meant a shameful, seditious death. Like you were, you were being killed as a traitor of the state if you were killed on a cross. And it was torture. If you see the cross, it's like seeing an electric chair, right? 
This is the, the worst punishment for the worst of criminals. It's a death sentence. And so uh, for, for uh, Jesus to say that he's going to be crucified, he's saying, I'm going to go to the electric chair. I'm going to die a criminal's death. I'm going to be put on the side of a road, stripped naked and beaten, and I'm going to die as if I am a criminal. And yet he now says to his disciples, guess what? That's actually God's plan. It is exactly God's plan that the son will suffer crucifixion. Nails in his hands and feet. Wooden splinters scraping across the wounds on his back where he had been flogged. A slow, suffocating death. And more than just the physical, as we know, the spiritual, the relational suffering that he went through as the father poured out wrath upon him, poured out judgment upon him, the judgment we deserve. That's the worst pain of all, we would all agree. And that's totally different to what the disciples expect. If you know anything about the disciples from our our quest through Matthew, it's that they're kind of bozos. Like, they're devoted to the Lord as far as they know, but they also don't quite get it. And so they think that when he goes into Jerusalem, you know, despite the fact he's talked all about this suffering and this death and this flogging and this crucifixion, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But actually, when you go into Jerusalem, I mean, you're going to waltz in and raise up an army and overthrow these pesky Romans, aren't you? You're going for glory, aren't you? But Jesus says, no. I'm going for suffering. Suffering first, then glory. And not glory in terms of overthrowing the Romans, but glory in terms of being raised on the third day to new life. God's plan is very different than what the disciples think. It's all about suffering. God's plan is for the Son to suffer. And I want you just to think, you know, Christianity is a religion that actually centers on the suffering of God the Son. Right? It centers on the suffering of God the Son. It's a, a, it centers on a, a, a display of incredible strength where in terms of Jesus defeating Satan and dealing with sin and turning aside the wrath of God. That's an incredible strength. But the way in which that was done was through incredible weakness. An act that, by all accounts, looks foolish and looks defeatist, right? He dies. We serve and we trust a saviour who appeared to be weak and foolish and defeated. We know it's not the case, but he appeared that way. And so it would be no wonder that the world views us that way as well. Weak, foolish, defeated. Remember, the first will be last, the last will be first. It's God's plan for the son to suffer. And we trust in a suffering Messiah. Is the first thing to pull out of this list. There's a second thing as well, and this is particularly for you if you're someone who maybe is not a Christian, you're checking out the things to do with Jesus, or maybe you've been struggling in your faith, you've had questions. Um, this, this list is so clear and so detailed. These are things that we should be able to verify. Like I said, this isn't like the, the oracle in the Matrix who just kind of gives these vague things, or it's like Nostradamus. Remember, he did that whole book of many, many, many prophecies and maybe one or two kind of resemble something that happened in the world and we go wow he prophesied it no he didn't he just sort of chanced it he put a whole lot of mud on the wall and something managed to stick (laughs) right that's that's not what this is this is a clear and detailed prophecy and what i wanted to show you here particularly if you're not a christian is that matthew the man who wrote these things down he was an eyewitness to this stuff okay Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they either were eyewitnesses or they interviewed an eyewitness. And I want to show you something on the screen here. 
Uh, this is from one of my commentaries. It lists out the different things that Jesus says is going to happen. And then on the right-hand side is the reference in Matthew where he says that's exactly how it happened, right? Here's what it comes back to. And you, you can, if you want, take a picture of that or, or write it down quickly or whatever. I'll leave it up there for a moment. Uh, but here's what it means, right? Everything that Jesus said was going to happen happened exactly like he said. The claim of Matthew and the gospel writers and of Scripture itself is that these are historical events. And that sets Christianity apart from the claims of any other religion or worldview, right? God's plan is for the Son to suffer, and that, that is something that actually played out in history. Jesus lived, he died, he rose again. Now, compare that to secular atheism, for example. Claim of secular atheism is that there is no God, there is no plan, it's chaos. So make the most of what you can now because you are the one who's got to make the meaning of your own life, right? There's no plan. But the claim of Christianity is there is a plan and you can see it in history. God's fingerprints are all over human history, especially in the life, death and resurrection of Christ. That's different to something like Buddhism where it's all just about a philosophy. It's about one man's thoughts and how they've been developed by others. It's just a system of ethics. It's not something that you can prove or disprove, it's different as well to something like Islam or Mormonism that I mentioned before, where um, the, the burden of proof rests on a private vision that, for example, Joseph Smith or the Mormons had or the, the Muhammad had in terms of Islam. They had a vision in a cave where they were supposedly spoken to by an angel. No one else was there to observe it or not. You just have to take their word for it. Whereas these things are public things that have eyewitness testimony. Right? And so if you're someone who's skeptical about the things of Jesus, or you're, you're doubtful whether these things are true, read about it. It's not just weigh up a system of ethics. It's not just think about how you feel about the church or how you feel about God. No, it's look at the claims that Jesus makes and see if they actually came to pass. Read the eyewitness accounts. If you're someone who is a, uh, not a Christian... And you're saying, well, I reject the Bible and I reject Christianity. Well, have you read the Bible? Have you read the Gospels? Have you actually come to an opinion about them? Have you, have you asked someone who's knowledgeable about these things to help you read it and help you understand it? If you haven't, then you have dismissed nothing. You've dismissed a straw man. But instead, I invite you, come and look at the actual evidence, the claims that Jesus made and how they played out in history. That's where Christianity rises and falls whether these things are true or not. And in a real sense, God actually positions Christianity, positions what we believe as, as saying, you know, I'm going to put my head on the chopping block, come and take a swing, see if you can cut it off. Right? We're not, Christians are not afraid of being challenged on these things. We know that they're true, right? And if you're someone who is a Christian, be encouraged. These things are true. They really did happen in history. Jesus really did live, really did die, really did rise again. And so here we have God's plan revealed. His plan for his son to suffer as a servant. He's on his way to Jerusalem. But the next question is, how do people respond to that plan? How do people respond? How do you respond? Whether you're Christian or you're not, how do you respond to the fact that Jesus came and died and gave his life on the cross? How should people respond to that? 
Well, what Matthew does next is he actually gives us two different responses in parallel. First, two sons who respond with presumption. And then two blind men who respond with pleading. Presumption, pleading. And I think that Matthew spends more time on the first one, and the first one's probably more significant for us. So we're going to spend about 80% of the rest of this sermon on that first one, the two sons and their presumption. But then it'll kind of all weave together in the kind of response we should have as we look at the two blind men and their pleading. So, just something I want you to notice here as well. You hear the two and the two, two sons, two blind men. I think Matthew's deliberately putting these things in parallel to make us think, you know, which one are we? How do I respond? So the first question, do I respond with presumption? And that might be a big word, particularly if you're a kid or you're a big kid and you go, what's presumption mean? Well, here's a picture of presumption, okay? See, on the left is a dog and on the right is a cat. And the cat is sleeping, of course, on the dog bed. And the dog is forced to sleep on, well, it's not really a bed, <laughs> just a headrest. Now, that's a picture of presumption. What does presumption mean? It's when you think you have a right to something. You think you get to be in charge and call the shots, but you don't actually have that right. You know, that dog could chase that cat out of there, couldn't he? But the cat is thinking, well, I'm going to sleep right there. And in fact, we experience this in our own home. We have a 16-year-old rag doll cat. We love him very much. His name is Charlie. But every morning at about 5 or 6 a.m., he will come and he will sleep right on my wife's stomach. Uh, and then he'll, he'll actually doesn't he sleep, he wakes up <laughs> and he sits there and just watches intently, right? Hoping that she's going to wake up and feed him breakfast. And of course, she's woken up as soon as this eight kilogram cat comes and sits on your stomach. What's even better is that now, of course, Sky's stomach has gotten a bit bigger. And so it's an even higher throne for him to sit on. <laughs> That's presumption, right? I know this would be giving like even more evidence to those of you who don't like cats. <laughs> or like our American friend who's, who's gone. He's on a plane at the moment, so he can't do anything about it. But uh, there's the picture of presumption, okay? And, and the response of presumption that we see in this passage has nothing to do with cats and dogs, but it does have to do with where people sit, funnily enough. And so take a look with me at verse 20 in chapter 20. Now, remember, Jesus has just given this incredible prophecy. He's told him exactly what's going to happen in Jerusalem. And then here's the very next thing that happens. Look at that first word. Then, like straight away, straight after hearing that the Son of Man is going to go and suffer and give his life to save you. Then, the mother of the sons of Zebedee, so that's James and John, two disciples of Jesus. Then, she comes up to him with her sons and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. Now, that's a good start. Kneeling before him. Yep, like worshipful, humble. He asks her, verse 21, what do you want? And she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Now listen to her tone there. Say that these two sons are to sit at your right and your left. Now, if your Bible, you might actually have a little like a title to this section above verse 20. Can you see that there? What's, what's your title say? A mother's request or maybe even in NIV, if anyone's got an NIV. Yep. Yep, there, there's, I know there's another one that says the request of James and John as well. The, the, the key is request. Now, is this a request? No, in, in grammatical terms, this is actually what's called an imperative or a command. She's saying, 
you must say that these two sons should sit at your left and your right. Now, why would she do that? Probably because she's worried about her sons, right? She's just heard that Jesus is going to Jerusalem to suffer. Please, can you make sure they're looked after? Can you make sure this is going to be worth it? And who can blame a mother for thinking that, right? But actually, this is the height of presumption to make a demand of Jesus, not a humble request at all, a demand. He's the son of God. Now, I think there's also more going on here because I don't think it's just mum who's to blame. Take a look at verse 22. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. There's a little bit of a shift that's happened here. Remember, there's mum. She's kneeling down here, the mother of the two sons. And, and Jesus asks, what do you want? Say that they're going to sit. Yep, okay. And then he says, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup? And then they say, we're able. So what, what's happened between? Here's what I think has happened in between. She's kneeling down there. He asks, she says, say, da, da, da. and then he turns probably with a bit of a sigh. Like, you guys don't know what you're asking. In other words, I know that you've put your mum up to this. Right? I know you're kind of trying to manipulate me by getting your dear old mum <laughs> to make this request of me. I know what's really going on here. This is what you guys want. You, James and John, don't know what you're asking. You see what's going on here? It's actually James and John making the demand, not just mum. Now, probably she wants to for her own reasons, but it's them. Now, why would they make this demand of Jesus? Well, remember, he's just talked all about his suffering and we've also seen that the disciples, they didn't really have much of a clue about why Jesus was going to Jerusalem, despite the fact he told them three times, like I said, kind of bozos. But, but they, they thought that he was going in to receive his glory. And as we saw last week, they have been told that they will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And so what are they thinking? They're thinking, oh, yeah, suffering, yeah, yeah, crucifixion. Uh, I don't know what all that's about. But glory, that sounds good. Thrones, that sounds really good. We're going to sit on 12 thrones. But then the question comes, who's going to get the closest seat to Jesus? Right, of these 12 thrones, who's going to have the best seats, so to speak? That's when they hatch the plan. Let's get mum to go and ask. And then, yeah, she might be able to manipulate him a little bit or something. Now, isn't that just the height of presumption? Not only making a demand of Jesus, but also trying to manipulate him into giving you the best seats in the house. That's why Jesus rebukes them by saying, you do not know what you are asking. And he then reminds them what he's actually come to do. God's plan is for the son to suffer. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? Now, um, are you okay with the, the door there, Claudine? Might have just been the, the handle that got a bit stuck. Dave will come help you out. Thank goodness it's not like a fire or something, right? Like, if there's a fire, go, go out that way. You know, just push the pram. <laughs> Oh, gosh. Oh, we're in a death trap. Okay. Um, back to it. So the cup, right? We're talking about the cup. Jesus is talking about the, the cup that he is going to drink. He's asked the disciples, will you drink this cup that I'm going to drink? Right? Remember that. Okay, you back with me? Now, we, get, we were to try and work out 
what does this cup mean? Because it's not like in, you've seen Indiana Jones, I think it's the first movie where they're looking for the Holy Grail, right? It's the cup, if you drink from it, you'll get it. It's not a literal cup. It's a symbol. The disciples would have understood that, actually, because it has some Old Testament background to it. Jeremiah verse 25, uh, chapter 25, I actually want you to come back with me to it, because I want you to see something. So Jeremiah, if you're in the church Bibles, it's on page 653. Okay, Jeremiah, it's after Isaiah, it's after the Psalms. Chapter 25, verse 15. I'll chuck it on the screen as well, but I'm only telling you that after I got you to try and find it. So, um, chapter 20, because I want you to see, I want you to see this, and there's something that I haven't put on the screen too that I want you to to see. So, um, I want you to notice here the cup, the way it talks about the cup. So, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, this is verse 15, he said to me, take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath, Right, there's the reference. And make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. So I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations to whom the Lord sent me drink it. So you hear all that imagery here, right? The, the cup, the drinking, the pouring out, and it represents God's wrath. His judgment. It's like the, the cup is tipping now over the nations. Now, why? Why is his wrath coming? Well, because it says here it's like a sword, right? Who does the government bring a sword against? It brings it against rebels, terrorists, right? That's a show of force to show these people will not threaten the person who's in charge and they will not threaten the safety of the people. So God says, I'm, I'm pouring out now the wrath from my cup. I'm making them drink of this cup that is going to send them crazy. In one sense, they're going to come under the judgment of God. All right? And here, Jeremiah describes the recipients of this judgment as all the nations. So if you come down to verse 17, he actually starts listing them. Right? You jump down to 19, it talks about Egypt. It talks about the Philistines. Talks about Moab, Edom, Babylon. These are all the different people that opposed Israel at different points in, in history, right? These are the enemies of the people of God. And God's saying that the cup is over you, the sword hangs over you, you're about to be judged by the living God for your rebellion, your rebellion. But notice something interesting. This is why I want you to open your Bible. Look at the start of verse 18. Before we hear about Egypt, before we hear about Moab, before we hear about Babylon. Who's the first enemy that's going to be judged? Jerusalem. The city that is about to crucify the Son of Man. The city that is about to do the worst injustice in all of human history. True enemies of the people of God. They, even they, sit under God's judgment. See, Jesus and his disciples are about to go into enemy territory, right? But those enemies will not remain unpunished. The cup of God's wrath is tilting above them. And the true horror, friends, is that is in fact the situation for all of us on our own. All of us are rebels against God. We all live presumptuously, do we not? Believing that we get to call the shots. 
that we get to make up the rules? There's that old poem, Invictus, you might know it, and it has this line in it that says, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Like, I hold the wheel. I say where we're going. Now, nothing could be further from the truth, friends. God is, in fact, in charge. He will not leave sin and rebellion unpunished. And like any government that comes against a threatening terrorist, he will deal with sin. This is why the wrath of God is coming. The cup is tilting. And yet now, Jesus says, James, John, it's not you who will drink that cup. It's me. I will drink the cup of God's judgment. So flick in your Bibles back to Matthew. And I want you to see a couple of things. You might be familiar with this in verse, or chapter 26, verse 39. Remember, Jesus is praying just before he's about to be arrested and crucified in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he says, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, the cup of wrath. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Verse 42, my father, if this, as in this cup, cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. In other words, he's saying, I am willingly submitting myself to your plan, God. Your plan is my plan. The son and the father are one in this. I will drink the cup of your wrath. I will take the judgment for sin. And that's why, if you come back to chapter 20, verse 28 the end of this little conversation with his disciples, he hits them with this, that the Son of Man came not... Can you just go back for me, please? Sorry, Rob. Uh, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And I want you just to think about that word ransom. Probably, you know, your gut response is something like an A4 sheet with little newspaper cutout letters or something, you know, a ransom note. But in the ancient world, the word ransom just meant the price that you paid to free a slave or free a prisoner of war. That was it. And so Jesus is saying, I have come, in fact, to give my life as the ransom payment for sinners, for those who are under God's judgment. I will drink the cup in their place. I didn't come to be served, though he deserves all serving and all worship in the world. I came to serve. And so with his innocent blood, he pays the price for our sin. And it means that all of those who trust in Jesus go free. The prisoner of war, freed. The slave, freed. Free from the power of sin, free from the pollution of sin, but crucially, free from the penalty of sin. God's judgment that is coming against all sin, all rebellion, poured out upon Jesus. And who else can do this for us? Only the innocent son of God, right? Which makes James and John's little like, can you drink the cup that, that I can drink? Oh, yeah, we're able. Yeah, sure you can. Like, no way. There's no person who can actually fill this role for us. Only Jesus, the perfect, innocent son of God. I mean, God demands a perfect sacrifice, does he not? Only God himself can pay the price. That's why he sends his son. That's why this has to be the plan. That's why his plan is for the son to suffer. And so, friends, trust the son. Turn to the Son. Turn away from your sin. Cling to the cross, white-knuckled and grateful. He is your only hope. 
throw off every presumption that you're the one in charge, that you get to call the shots, that you get to make the rules. No, you've broken the rules. You've betrayed God, just like me. That's why the Son and His suffering in service of us is our only hope. Remember, the first will be last. Last will be first. We must become like children to enter the kingdom. Throw off presumption and trust simply in the Son. How can you know if that's you? How can you know if you really are trusting Jesus? Well, one way is that throwing off presumption, you will become more like the Son. You will serve like the Son. That's where Jesus goes with the conversation. He says to James and John in verse 23, you'll drink my cup. Not, not like you will bear the judgment of humanity. We've already established that's not what they can do. But you'll suffer, right? If you're going to follow me, you really will suffer. And indeed they do. Many of the disciples actually give their lives for the gospel. The 10 other disciples then hearing this whole thing, they're indignant. They're spitting chips, right? Not because they're, you know, they get it. Not because they're on the same page as Jesus. I think it's just that they knew, you know, dang it, they got in before us, right? Like when you go and you book movie seats at Hoyts or whatever and you leave it to the last minute and it's, it's just oh, it's those stupid seats down the front where, you, yeah, you have to look up like that, Tony, exactly. And it's like, oh, I can't see them. I should have booked earlier. That's these guys, right? I should have gotten in before James and John. And so Jesus calls them all back together, not just James and John. He calls all of them. And verse 25, he says to them, think about the people in charge, right? The Gentile rulers. Think about Caesar, Think about the Roman governors. Think about the soldiers with their swords on their sides, strutting about in the marketplace like they're the ones in charge. They love being in charge. They love calling the shots. But he says then in verse 26, it shall not be so among you. That's not you anymore. Throw off every presumption. Instead, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you, remember first, last, last, first, whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Feels a bit wrong to say that, doesn't it? That's obviously a politically loaded term these days. And it was in those days too. But this is what Jesus is saying. You must become a slave. And here's what that means. You see, Jesus calls every disciple, everyone who would trust in him for the hope of forgiveness and eternal life, to abandon their place at the front of the pack and sink to the back. Throw off every presumption and let yourself... Fall all the way back. That's what we talked about last week. First, last, last, first. But when you get to the back of the pack, it's not just that you sort of run your race, but now you see a lot of people in front of you and you go, well, gee, okay, I'm letting them go ahead, like passively letting other people do better than you or something. Actually, you have a role at the back of the pack and it is to serve. It is to act for the benefit of those around you. That's what it means to be a slave. You do not live for yourself, you live for others. And so it's a bit like this. You know, you might have seen someone like this in a, a marathon race, for example. There's someone at the back who's gotten injured and another one of the runners will come along and pick them up and they will slow down their race for the sake of that injured person. Or you might have seen that someone's running a marathon and there's someone running behind them carrying the Powerade or the water or, or the food that they need. Or the, that's you, friends, if you're a disciple of Jesus. Right? The race isn't about you. It's about Jesus and it's about serving those around you. That's what he's saying here in saying become like a servant or a slave. And why would anyone do that? Because verse 28, 
We serve even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is our motivation. We fix our eyes on him. We choose to live like him. The one who went to his death to serve us, who practiced what he preached. He gave his life as a ransom. And so he calls all of those who trust in him to abandon their presumption and serve others in exactly the way that he did. So the question is, do you really trust Jesus? Are you really clinging to the cross in this way? And one way to know that you are uh, is to, to look at where you are on the racetrack. Are you at the front, still trying to run your own race, get as much as you can for yourself? Or perhaps you're somewhere in the middle, saying, well, I'm not getting in anyone's way at least. Oh, that's not what Jesus commands. At the back, serving others trying to help others go forward in the faith, trying to help others come and realize they need to be at the back too, trusting in Jesus. How are you serving them? What's it costing you? Like I said, we had our, our members meeting last week, and I'm actually really encouraged, guys. Those of you who are members here, I'm actually really encouraged on this point, and I want you to hear Jesus spurring you forward, okay? Because as I was sitting there and I was going, yeah, guys, I'm only going to be three days a week for the next few months. This is going to be a bit rough. Without exception, everyone in that room was like, Fine. Okay. Let's do it. Let's serve each other. <laughs> let's pray. Let's, let's get our hands dirty. And, and you're going to need to over the next few months. Like, as we talked about, if you're a member here, you're going to need to read the Bible with other people, pray with other people, be there for other people in a way that simply I can't. I just don't have the time, right? But I think that's actually exactly what our church needs. It's all of us stepping up in order to serve one another. It's exactly this picture, okay? And I am so encouraged because I can see you beginning to do that already. So hear Jesus spurring you on. If you seek to be great, serve. Put away your pride. One more thing to say. God's plan was for the son to suffer. We must not respond with presumption, but instead Matthew finishes the gospel or this section of his gospel by giving us a different response. One of pleading. And um, I'm not going to spend too long on this, just a, a minute or two. Like I said, 80% on the presumption, 20% on this. But I do want you just to see here how Matthew is presenting for us, this is the way now to respond to Jesus, the suffering son. Now look, two blind men sit by the road just outside Jericho on the way to Jerusalem. They probably sit there all day. Can you spare a coin? Please, even just a thought, a prayer. They're used to people ignoring them. But today, they hear Jesus passing by. So verse 30, they call out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And the crowd says to them, quiet. He doesn't have time for you. Go back to your spot. But they cry out all the louder. Verse 31, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And so Jesus stops and he turns to them. And this moment is really interesting because like I said, Matthew puts these two scenes in parallel I want you to consider all the different parallels that are here. First, two sons. Second, two blind men. The number two. I've already pointed that out. But notice that the two sons are privileged insiders. They're the in-group of Jesus' disciples. The two blind men are despised outsiders. They have no claim to anything. In the, the previous scene, the two sons address Jesus through a third party. They speak through their mum. But in this scene, the two blind men address him directly. 
The two sons use no title of, of honor or respect. Instead, they make a demand. But these two blind men, they call him Lord. They call him Son of David. They recognize who he is. And finally, in the, the first scene, Jesus asked the disciples, or he asked their mother, what do you want? And then in this scene also, in verse 32, he asked the two blind men, what do you want me to do for you? Do you see the, the parallels between these two scenes? He's trying to show us, well, which one are you? And so these blind men, ironically, they actually see what the disciples didn't, and they make a request of Jesus. They, they plead with him. They plead for mercy. They recognize how needy they are. And so Jesus asks, what do you want me to do for you? And that's a good question for all of us. What do you want Jesus to do for you? Do you want him just to fix the problems in your life? Right? The, the problems in your family? Do you want him just to give you a good marriage? To bring the kids back together? Do you want him to, to make you feel better about yourself? Give you a good sense of self-esteem? Do you want him to give you a happy marriage, a better job, influence, a ministry position? Well, the blind men can ask for anything, but their request is simple. Verse 33, Lord, let our eyes be opened. They just want to see their saviour. They just want to see Jesus. They want to see the Messiah who they can't currently see. That's all they want. And then the dialogue drops out of the scene. There's no more words. And we hear instead just this in verse 34. And Jesus in pity touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Immediately. Miracle. Immediately. But there's compassion. There's touch. There's healing. And then their response. Following. Here's the response that Jesus calls us to have. It's pleading with him for mercy. Throw off every presumption. Plead for mercy. Recognize your need. On your own, dead in sin. The cup of wrath tilts above us. And so all we can do is plead for his mercy. And when we do, right, whether for the first time or, or the thousandth or the hundred thousandth, we find Jesus, the suffering servant who gave his life as a ransom for many on the cross, reaching out to us with compassion, a healing touch, forgiveness for our soul, opening our eyes again to trust in him. And so what else can we do then? But having been forgiven of so much, follow like these blind men did. What else will we do but follow him? What else would we do but become servants, even suffer, just like our Saviour? Let's pray. Lord, as we reflect on these words, we reflect on how you revealed yourself in history, we pray simply, be merciful to us, forgive us afresh, help us trust in you and your work on the cross again, help us follow you as those who serve. In Jesus' name. Amen.